0: The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we look at the international negotiations over climate change. Last week, the US and China surprised the world with an outline agreement in which both countries agreed to limit emissions of greenhouse gases. Climate change activists who've had little to cheer about in recent years are delighted. But how big a breakthrough is this? Joining me to discuss the state of play are Polita Clark, the FT's environment correspondent, and Paul Bledsoe, who worked on climate change issues in the Clinton White House and is now Senior Fellow on Climate and Energy at the German Marshall Fund in Washington, D.C. Polita, let me start with you. Is this as important as it sounds it might be, this U.S.-China agreement?
1: Well, I think politically it's extremely important. We had known that behind the scenes at Washington and Beijing were talking about this. And had been doing so for some time. In fact, I was in Beijing in April and um, spoke to a number of senior officials then. And it became apparent that they were indeed a little more advanced, in fact, a lot more advanced than we'd expected and were talking about each other's targets, which was fairly extraordinary given that for 20 odd years of climate negotiations these two countries the world's two biggest emitters have been on opposite sides of the table china has been the sort of flag bearer for the group of 77 so called the developing countries and insisting that it's the us and other developed countries that have to make all the cuts and as it's become richer and has become a more, uh, powerful emitter itself, the US has said, well, you know, forget it. We won't be doing anything unless you uh, also move. Now, that deadlock, which has really been such an impediment to any progress in these climate negotiations, has now, politically at least, been broken, which is an extraordinary event.
0: And just in a couple of sentences, what have they actually agreed
1: So the Chinese have agreed that their emissions are going to peak no later than 2030. The US has agreed that it's going to be cutting its emissions by at least 26% from 2005 levels by 2025. So... This leads to the question of what this means scientifically and that is unfortunately another bit of a dampener on the political breakthrough because really scientifically there's a lot of debate about whether that is in fact going to be sufficient to keep us within two degrees of warming which is what the internationally agreed target is
0: we'll get on to the science in a little bit. But, Paul, let's just talk about the politics for a moment. Were you surprised by this? And do you think the two sides can go beyond the outline agreement and actually deliver what they've agreed?
2: Well, I I was surprised, as Polita suggested, uh, we hadn't expected the announcement together. And I think that's tremendously important that they made the announcement together. It suggests they realize that they have to help each other with this problem and particular that the U.S. has to help China decarbonize its economy and especially reduce its reliance on coal. China gets over 80% of its electricity today from coal. It simply cannot continue that reliance on coal to deal either with its horrible air quality problems or to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. In terms of whether the U.S. and China can actually meet these goals, I think the Chinese have left a lot of wiggle room. Unfortunately, if they don't reach an emissions peak until 2030, I think globally we're going to have a very difficult time reaching the 2 degrees Celsius target that the IPCC has put forth. So having China reach that peak much sooner is probably still the key question in climate protection. And they, the, they,
0: they did leave a little wiggle room in the agreement, didn't they, to right. possibly go they quicker? They said
2: they hope to reach it by 2025. That difference is all the difference in the world. So there's going to be immense pressure on China to reach that peak earlier. And also, the U.S. is really going to help China do that. In terms of the U.S. target, though, I think it may be even more tenuous. And the reason is the profound political divide in the United States on the question of climate change action. Every Republican presidential candidate is going to vow to overturn the underlying regulations of U.S. power plants that are the only thing giving the U.S. a chance of meeting its target. So if a Republican president is elected, there's a very good chance he'll water down those regulations. The Republican Congress is going to try to do it, although the president will veto it in the next two years. And those underlying regulations are going to be subject to court challenge from Republicans in the states. So the U.S. target is quite tenuous indeed. And why
0: are the Republicans so opposed? I mean, I know a lot of them say, well, climate change isn't happening. But is it also because there is inevitably going to be... A cost and higher energy prices because of all this extra regulation.
2: I think it's actually much more cultural than that and political in the United States. Increasingly, even Republicans are admitting that the world is warming. Believe it or not, that's still the stage that the conversation is in. I believe the Republican presidential candidates are going to find this issue a very difficult one to deal with in the next two years. And I think it's going to be a litmus test in their ability to put facts over ideology, which has been the caricature of their leadership for the last 10 years.
0: Turning back to the kind of international context, Polito, it was often said that this was the key, US-China, because they're the two biggest emitters and that the rest of the world might then follow on. I mean, is it going to be that simple? I don't know nothing simple, but is it true, do you think, to say that once the US and China have done this deal, we're halfway to the world deal they're looking for in Paris next year?
1: That is the very big question. And we'll start to see that answered in a couple of weeks time when this year's UN international climate talks start in Lima in Peru. Because so far we haven't seen what the large developing countries India, Brazil, and South Africa, who traditionally negotiated as a group with China in these talks, we haven't had a major response from them. We don't understand yet, I don't think, how they are going to respond to this U.S.-China deal. And it's really important as far as negotiations are concerned, because as you know, next year we're supposed to be all gathering in Paris for the agreement of Post 2020. Some form of post-2020 agreement that's going to somehow get the world to limit emissions and uh, thwart potentially risky climate change. So it's going to be extremely interesting for India in particular, I think, which is a large emitter itself, but also, of course, a very impoverished country to, to see how they respond to this the nature of the agreement in Paris is now going to come into focus. You know, In other words, how legally binding is it going to be? Is what the US and China have put down going to be in writing in the way it was not with the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, for example? That's going to be a hugely difficult question to settle, and we'll start to see how that plays out in Lima. Just give us a sense
0: though, of you know, I talked to Paul about why um, there's American resistance. I mean, if you're Indian or even Chinese, what does it mean in terms of economic growth to sign on to tighter targets? Why are they so reluctant?
1: Well, India and China are not signing on to absolute reductions in emissions in the way that developed countries are. That's never been part of the process. Nobody really expects that. What we're looking for is what China's actually agreed to, which is a peak in emissions. you know it's accepted that uh, they're at a very different stage of economic development. The problem though is that from their perspective, you know developed countries cause this problem, developed countries should fix it and by the way, developed countries should pay us to help to put our energy system onto a low carbon trajectory in the jargon but you know try to make it as uh, least carbon polluting as possible Now, that's when a whole other raft of problems emerge, because then you have not just the US, but in particular Australia, Canada, other countries, this one even, uh, the UK, saying, well, hang on, is that what really our foreign aid budget is for? I thought it was for a whole, you know, if if you're David Cameron staring down the barrel of the UK UK Independence Party at the moment, um, it's very difficult to agree to the sorts of funding requirements which are central to these negotiations.
0: Paul, I mean, there's always been this hope that somehow technology would ride to the rescue and that people would see some breakthrough. And where are we on on that? Are these technologies emerging that makes what seemed such an impossible task look a little bit easier? It,
2: It is in many ways the critical question. And maybe the most critical question is how to deal with coal. And the Chinese are trying to develop commercially viable carbon capture and storage with coal, which seems to be the only way to use coal without emitting greenhouse gases. And the question is, it is viable technologically, but it's quite expensive right now. Somewhere between fifteen and 80% more expensive than regular coal-fired power plants. Is
0: this where you capture the stuff as it comes out that's, and then you pump it underground? That's precisely
2: right. Yeah. Many people seem to think that that will be the key technology, that we simply cannot generate the amount of electricity that will be needed without it. Obviously, China is going to be expanding their nuclear capacity significantly as well. They are looking for gas from Russia. They made two big agreements just in the last year. They're looking to develop their own shale resources. However, a lot of us believe there are going to be even more technologies that need to be created. I'm doing some work with Bill Gates and other CEOs in the United States to press the U.S. government to invest more in basic R&D research, things like storing electricity. We do not know how to store electricity at large scale right now. If we could figure that out, that would be a game changer in allowing renewable and other low-emitting technologies to play a much larger role in our electricity delivery systems. So technology is ultimately going to be the key here, both developing new breakthrough technologies and driving down the cost of existing technologies we know work, but are difficult to deploy in the marketplace.
0: Finally, can I just end by asking, you know, how optimistic both of you are that we can actually do this? Because sometimes you listen to uh, depressing voices who say, well, it's almost too late already, the climate's changing, the ice caps are melting, all that stuff is up there, we can't take the carbon that's already emitted out of the skies. And meanwhile, we're still polluting at quite a rate. And we're just not going to do this in time. What do you think, Polita first, and then Paul?
1: you know i swing from month to month sometimes from week to week on this issue because you know sometimes you'll have a week when canada for example as it did last month will announce that it's finally got the world's first large commercial scale carbon capture and storage system working on a coal fired power plant you think oh okay maybe this maybe ccs is is not the dead dog that it's looked as though it has been And then the IPCC will come out with a report saying, actually, you know, we have just a few decades left before we have to really start to totally get fossil fuels phased out of energy systems at large scale. And you think, I just can't see how that's going to happen. So, yes, I probably, on balance, would say I'm fairly pessimistic.
2: Paul? I'm more optimistic, yeah, than, I optimistic last, than, I, than I was last than than I was last week before this China US deal. The China US deal had to happen if we were going to have any chance. Right. That being said, we have to recognize that this is a marathon We are going to have to iterate our energy systems on a constant basis. We're going to have to invest in new technology deployment. We're going to have to help developing countries grow in a different way than the West did, decarbonizing their economy. We're going to have to come up with very, very complicated systems for pricing over the long term. This is a marathon we cannot afford not to finish.
0: Paul, that's a very nice note on which to end. So thank you very much, Paul Bledsoe, and also to Polita Clark here at the FT. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.
2: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.